two gas employees stopped their truck in a suburban neighborhood to check the meters on a row of houses. They parked at one end and worked their way from house to house. At the last house, a woman inside watched them from her window. When they finished checking the meter, the older supervisor challenged the young colleague to a foot race back to the truck, declaring that he was more physically fit. They ran down the street, obviously giving it all they had, and as they approached the truck, the woman from the last house was huffing and puffing right behind them. And she said, when I saw you check my gas meter and start running, I decided I better run also. Does my persuasion of what God says actually have that kind of effect on people who observe me? We are the only Bible this careless world will read. We are the sinner's gospel. We are the scoffer's creed. We are the Lord's last message given in deed and word. What if the type is crooked? What if the print is blurred? And I submit to you that if the church doesn't get the type set accurately, who will? And if the people in the church don't live it well, the print is blurred, if we don't get it right, who will? Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. A nationally known preacher once made a statement concerning the obvious consequences of children being raised without a father's influence and presence in the home. And you know, as well as I do, the negative evidence that abounds around us when dads aren't fulfilling their role at home. And we also know that the Bible gives a clear mandate. God has a clear expectation for those responsible for the birth of children, to parent them, teaching, training, and nurturing them. And the preacher, who was brave enough to rebuke failing fathers, was excoriated by the national media with the typical charges of being intolerant, narrow-minded, and, of course, hateful. An example among many who today are calling good evil and evil good. You see, for a preacher to tell his audience that negligence of Bible parenting and training will result in adverse consequences, and then being called intolerant, racist, or prejudiced, and lots of other bad names, people who do such are doing exactly what this text condemns, 
calling good bad and bad good. You notice as we read the text in Isaiah 5, the amount of woes that God placed or the, the prophet placed upon those who do certain things. Woe is a term of judgment. When the prophets and Jesus used this word, it was to pronounce a sorrowful, awful end on the object or the person that it was being directed toward. And so we can assure ourselves this morning that it will not go well with those who have this judgment placed upon them lives. Woe is not a word you and I want describing us. So what is the subject of the woe? There's a number of them listed in this passage, but we're especially looking at verse 20 this morning and some in the surrounding verses. But in verse 20, we have these, those who call evil good and good evil, those who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Doing and saying any of these three is a serious thing for a human being to be doing. One that will bring severe judgment upon him. The word woe, I learned, is a literal transliteration of the Hebrew. In other words, I didn't know this before, uh, it's an expression that sounds the same in Hebrew as it does in English. A little like our word hallelujah. The word woe is also known as an onomatopoeia. I forgot about that word, or maybe I never knew it. But, um, but I looked at this word woe, and it's an, onomat an onomat onomatopoeia. Oh. It's when the formation of a word imitates the natural sound associated with the object or action involved. And so when we use the word woe, we should really be saying it, whoa. Consider saying it with those deep, painful, mournful sounds. God, Isaiah, and the translators use this word in a very appropriate way. It's an, it's an exclamation of pain and grief. And as our culture drifts farther and farther away from its biblical moorings, we see more and more the truth of what Isaiah is prophesying here. You know, as well as I do, it's generally not enjoyable or fun to be the one who must pronounce woe on folks. No one wants to hear bad news. What really is bad news? Even bad news when it's true and accurate, should it be viewed as bad news? Often it brings grief, sorrow, and discomfort to the recipient. Bad news is generally not what any of us want to hear. None of us wanted to hear Brother Jake had cancer. 
None of us wanted to hear Brother Matt had a heart attack. It's not the kind of news that we like to hear. And not all bad news needs to be told. Much of it is probably better left unsaid. But when bad news could spare the hearer much greater grief, sharing it is actually good. And examples of this uh, abound in the natural realm. Uh, your collar is doubled up. I had a brother behind me this morning, and it picked something off of my suit coat. He was, he was bad that it was there, and so he took care of it. Your account is overdrawn. Your cows are out. You have appendicitis. Your house is on fire. Those are things that we don't generally want to hear or know about. But in the spiritual realm, what kind of news is the believer expected, even required, to consider? By definition, we say the gospel is good news. When we think of the many glorious themes in the Gospels, in the Gospel message, we think of forgiveness of sin. We think of peace in uncertainty. We think of adoption into God's family, fellowship with Christ, and best of all, eternal life. I appreciate the songs on heaven. I mean, when you look at this list, this is, this is good. What could be better? Truly, the gospel is the ultimate good news. Yet, not everyone considers the Bible message to them to be good news. Some reject it as bad news because they don't want to believe it. They don't want to hear it. Many consider it bad news because it contains elements they don't want to hear and think about. Things like repentance, surrender, cross-bearing, forgiving others, self-denial. You see, these are just as true as the ones we like just as necessary, just as important. But many times when people consider these last five in place of the first five I have listed, they're aggrieved because this convicts them of sin. Convicts them of change in their life they'd rather not consider. And so they prefer just not to be reminded. So I ask you the question, is it still good news when God asks or commands us to do things that we don't prefer doing or living? Is it still good news? Yeah, I think so. Reactions to God and his followers who are bearing forth truth varies. I told you about the preacher who talked about the fathers who were not doing what they should have been doing. But when... When you tell someone what the good news says, and they don't want to hear it, some turn away sorrowful. The Bible says some stop their ears. I don't know how you do that. Some mock. Some physically attack the messenger. We have examples of that. 
John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, Stephen the Apostle Paul, the Anabaptist martyrs, and countless others gave their lives for being what was viewed to them as bad news. Part of the issue in being willing to stick, one, stick one's neck out and offer an honest plea to consider what God says is that one actually risks his neck being cut off as John the Baptist was. When that woman Herodias didn't like him telling her that he was living in sin, he was living in, 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 living in adultery wickedly. And so rather than heed the messenger, she just gets rid of the message. Or rather than heed the message, she gets rid of the messenger. You know, that's still happening today. There's probably not a lot of beheading being done, but we find ways to do away with the message we'd rather not hear. Hopefully that's not us, though. This kind of opposition of any kind in today's society is often branded as the enemy. And it's talked about in, as hate speech or intolerance, and the list could go on. Because of that, and not enjoying such negative reactions, plenty of good news preachers are only preaching a partial gospel today. They teach remission without repentance, faith without works, a crown without a cross, a living sacrifice with no sacrifice. And I have the confidence this morning that the preaching that comes across this pulpit by your preachers is not a partial gospel. I actually have full confidence there that your pastors actually make an honest attempt to be completely biblical. Even willing at times to say some things that's just really difficult and unpopular to say. Since that is your experience, if that is your experience, and since I think it is your experience, I think you would do well to just thank them on occasion. Probably you are. But I remind you that not nearly all church attenders today have that gift every Lord's Day morning. They speak to please their itching ears like Ahab's 400 rubber stamp prophets. The rare Micaiah in 1 Kings chapter 22 who has the courage to tell the truth is considered an oddity today, as he was then. He became the target for a negative reaction. Ahab said, I hate him, for he doth not prophesy good concerning me, but evil, in 1 Kings 22, verse 8. And further, the 400 other prophets, they, they pressure Micaiah, to say what they wanted to be heard, what the king wanted to hear. Let thy word, I pray thee, be like, be like the word of one of them, and speak that which is good. You 
Here's the question. What good is a prophet who says what his peers tell him to say? He's like a doctor who cannot or will not give the bad news to his patient. Hmm. This patient I have, he must either diet or die. Either have surgery or die of an infection. But I, I just, you know, I, I just can't bear to hurt his feelings. I'm afraid what it would do to my relationship with my, with my patient. A good doctor and a good prophet says what the patient needs to hear. Whether good news or bad, you see, when someone is on a deadly path, it is good news for him to hear bad news. And it's also very good of the messenger to give him the bad news. And it's bad for him and the messenger to be spared the bad news, which in essence is all good news. No matter what pressure he is under, the true prophet of the Lord concurs with Micaiah as he responds to the other 400 prophets in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 14. As the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. You see, that's the prophet's job. And that's the responsibility of Weavertown Church also. Simply be a messenger of the gospel. At the end of the day, it's all really good news because God gave it to us. Whether it's perceived as or something else, whether it's accepted as good news or bad news. Yes, there's, there's probably a place for tact, for communicating effectively, for speaking the right words at the right time. All as God's good Holy Spirit directs us. The news must be shared lovingly and carefully, but we must never yield to pressure to make people feel comfortable with us. Comfortable with sin, I should say. So when someone asks your church, asks you a question, what does your, teach, what does your church teach about remarriage? Or what do you believe about homosexuality and transgender? I submit to us, we must give them what God's Word says about it. Good news that gives false hope is actually really bad news. So is bad news that gives no hope. This is especially true, I think, in the spiritual sense. As bad and as dark as it gets for believers sometimes on earth, we do have something very good to think and promote following our existence here. We have hope to give, even in the midst of some really bad times. As I think of the prophet Jonah, he was one who maybe was kind of a bad news evangelist, mostly because he didn't love the souls in Nineveh that he was preaching to. He wanted to bring the bad news of condemnation and judgment, but really not interested in the good news of forgiveness and mercy that God was interested in sending them. 
And so for bad news to be good, it must be coupled with genuine hope. And again, this is the beauty of the gospel. Like a, like a good doctor, it awakens a person to his need and then provides the cure. Humanity has always been adept at confusing evil with good. That was Adam and Eve's problem, and it's still our problem today. If evil were not made to appear good, there would be no such thing as temptation. As in the case of Adam and Eve, we have an enemy that is proficient in convincing many into this confusion. God says in 2 Corinthians 11:13 and 14, For such are false prophets, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. The Bible says that Satan, uses the word transformed, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He's not what he appears to be. It means that Satan capitalizes on our natural love of something just like light in order to deceive us. He wants us to think that he is good, that he is truthful, loving and powerful, all the things that God actually is. But he's not. You know, if Satan were to portray himself as a dark, devilish being with horns, you think people would be attracted to him? I don't think we would be tempted or swayed by him if that's the way he would present himself. Most people are not drawn to darkness, but they are drawn to light. He transforms himself to something that's appealing. And often, too often, people accept his lies for what they are. And our ability, our only sure proof method is to determine good from evil is to have a good, solid understanding of what the Word of God says. Someone has said, a wrong deed is right if the majority of people declare it not to be wrong. No. Establishing a determination a determination of good and evil on what the majority declare is a really dangerous way to determine right and wrong. It's never worked very long for any period of time. History clearly shows us that the morality of man without God continually shifts away from God and from his principles. In my short lifetime, and certainly for those older than my generation, we actually lived in a society where divorce was once frowned upon. I distinctly remember sitting, as a young boy, sitting out on the picnic table 
in the front yard and my dad explaining to our feed man why, why he was living in sin. Because he remarried and his first wife was still living. We took it that serious back then. Laws and positions in both general society and the church against things such as fornication, adultery, were strictly spoken against and even enforced. But now today, in the same land, mind you, divorce is pretty much accepted by society. Fornication, adultery is glorified in the world's literature and films. And many, many churches have gone absolutely Absolutely quiet. No longer view it as being exceedingly sinful. The Bible says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. God has not changed his standards. They have not been lowered. God still calls immorality sin. And the Bible says he will still bring judgment on those who practice and make excuses for it. Honesty, integrity, was once a hallmark of character. And it still is by serious biblicists. But you know as well as I do that our American culture, and maybe this even comes closer home than we care to admit, Honesty and integrity has been set aside with ideas such, it's all right as long as you don't get caught. John Steinbuck has a quote. He says, if it succeeds, they will be thought not crooked, but clever. How do we get our values so mixed up in such a short time? How did we fall into the trap of Satan? I think sometimes we look for shortcuts to happiness. Our lust for the immediate pleasure prompts us to sometimes make these decisions. And secondly, maybe we're not as aware of Satan and his influence as we should be, and that he is one to reckon with. He is still actively posing today as an angel of light. For many, solid convictions and beliefs are no longer present, non-existent. Rather, their opinions and beliefs have become fluid and transit, Many young people in our society, along with many of their parents, are continually shifting from one side to the other. Morally, they are drifting aimlessly without a compass or guide. But today, good and right is right, even if nobody around us is right. And wrong is still wrong, even if everybody around us is wrong. Good does not change moral positions. God does not change his moral positions to suit evolving behavior. One of those evolving behaviors is known as rationalism. 
And this is the practice of believing what is based on reason, reliance on reason as the basis for establishment of a religious truth. And we talked about this a little bit in our Sunday school class. It's a little hard to reason some of those things that are given in Genesis. But God's people read it and accept it by faith that maybe they don't understand everything. Again, we see this present itself with our first parents. It was Adam, you remember, who tried to rationalize with God by saying, uh, that woman you gave me, uh, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. I read some time ago, one of the members of the Senate used this uh, same method. He said, I did nothing that a thousand other men would not have done. Doesn't change whether it's right or wrong, does it? We excuse ourselves. We call evil good instead of repenting and acknowledging that we're wrong or that we've sinned, that we've made a mistake. Way too often we, we rationalize it. Lest we make some flimsy excuse for this behavior, let's observe what Jesus said when he saw, it, when he saw this very thing exhibited by two men in the Gospel of Luke chapter 18. He said of the self-righteous Pharisee who stood and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other man, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You see, that Pharisee kidded himself into thinking that he was really something when he was not. He was skilled in this ancient and modern art of rationalism. But the tax collector, whom the Pharisee looked upon as the most sinful of men, he actually saw himself as he was, and he says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus, in verse 13, Jesus says, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, the tax collector, he saw himself as, as a sinner in need of mercy, in need of grace. And the resulting condition of his life was that he could go down to his house justified. Can I do that? Can you do that? Can you go down to your house today justified because of the grace of God in your life? But the Pharisee, he rationalized. He says, you know what? I fast twice every week. I give strictly of my income, of my tithe. Surely, surely I'm in a much better place than this publican is. Well, Jesus had a, a different perspective. When I was first preparing for this message, I was reading through the book of Romans for my personal devotions. In chapter 1, God gives a very graphic and vivid clarity on what will happen 
to those who refuse to accept truth as he has recorded it for us. So let's, let's turn to Romans chapter 1 and just read a piece of this. This is God's word to us. When sometimes we're maybe tempted to rationalize. We're going to break in reading in Romans chapter 1, verse about 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools." and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into which is against nature, and likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. I read that and I just like, is God really this strong? He really means this? Why is it that Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 5 says, The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. Yeah, this is pretty rampant, I think, in our society. God says it's an abomination. 
diverse against transvestitism, I guess that's how you say this word, dressing like the opposite gender. This is a prime example of how the Bible places boundaries between male and female. Because God has told us that there is a male and there's a female, and there's nothing else. And he has made us wonderfully. I think it's wonderful that he has assigned a specific gender to each of us. The clear identity of two human species, and only two, I think is a gift to be cherished by us. rather than to be denied or confused by. To deny the gender God has given you, that, Jesus, that, he, that you've entered into life with and began breathing air, to deny that, to deny the gender has given you, God has given you, is also to deny the God who gave it to you. And thus to rebel against an almighty, sovereign God. On the creation of this identity and very specific order, let's consider Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. I know you probably just looked at this in your um, Sunday school class. So God created man in his, own, in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. This truth is the fountainhead of all other conversations about human gender and sexuality in the Bible. This is where it begins and ends. In our discussions and decisions here on earth, everyone hearkens back to this truth that God has established. After Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says God saw that it was very good. Genesis 1:31. Therefore, again, to deny who we are is to rebel against God who has said it's very good in the design he has given us. To revolt against this signifies and implies arrogance, pride, revolt, selfishness, self-indulgence, whereas accepting and rejoicing in how God hath made you speaks of humility, celebration, gratitude, submission, and worship. And I recognize in a very few possible rare instances when a child may be born with both sets of gender organs, uh, physical defects that I believe are a result of the fall, but be advised, I think a rare exception should never allow, should never be allowed to trump the rule. Just a few comments here on how Christians should treat gender-confused people. I, I don't have this all together, but there's a few things that I think the scriptures would call us to. Number one is just this thing of having compassion. This is one of the things that Jesus so well expressed in the three years of his ministry. No, he did not depart from truth as he lived out and showed compassion. 
But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Because these people were troubled, insecure, and often possessed deep wounds, he saw them as people with a great need of healing, teaching, and care. And I suggest we need to do this gently and respectfully. We also need to remember that they are our fellow men. And that the only thing that separates us is grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Grace is such a wonderful thing. Sometimes we find ourselves on, I don't know, a couple ditches, I guess, on concerning grace and our interpretation and appreciation. Or, uh, but Randy Alcorn makes a, makes a statement that I thought really does well with our, our call to live graciously, to live in grace. He says, any concept of grace that makes us feel more comfortable sinning is not biblical grace. God's grace never encouraged us to live in sin. On the contrary, it empowers us to say no to sin and yes to truth. Thank God for grace. Jesus came to take away and forgive sin. And I believe he expects us to live the same way. Romans 6, verse 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? It is hellacious error to say that as Christians, we are not supposed to feel guilty when we sin. When you sin, you feel guilty because you are guilty. Feeling guilty, otherwise known as being convicted in our sin, is the painful symptom of a dying soul. Christ's grace is not spiritual Advil intended to numb the pain of guilt. Guilt is the warning sign. Maybe something's not right here. Sin is a deadly disease, and God's grace, Christ's grace, is our cure. You see, there was a time when we were with God, without God also. You know, it's probably true that most of us sitting here this morning have multiple generations of godliness in our... In our um, Heritage. Mom and dad were believers. Gruss mommy and gruss daughty were believers. And we can probably go back a number of generations. But I think it's important for me to consider sometimes, well I know it is important, but it wasn't always so in my generations. I'm told that our ancestry, our fathers, were actually barbarians at one time. 
we think we come from a pretty good stock. Yes, they were very uncivilized, they were rough, they were wicked, and they were immoral. And if the Catholic Church hadn't been intentional in doing some mission work, we would possibly yet today be in our sin, be barbarians. I close with these scriptures. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you're washed. But you're sanctified. But you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of our God. We live in a generation in which morality has been swinging in the winds. I'm so grateful that we, yet today, can follow Jesus Christ according to his commands. We can trust our good Father that his word hasn't yet changed since he recorded it for us. And his word will continue being the anchor, even if it gets a little stormy around us. But it's so important that we're anchored here. And may the Lord raise up faithful men and women who leave testimonies of steadfastness. I don't know, maybe it's just because I'm getting a little older. But I just have such deep appreciation for men and women who have lived faithfully all their lives. I've known these folks. They were probably in their 30s or 40s when I first remembered them, but today they're in their 80s and 90s. I'm so encouraged by those kind of people. May we have the rare men and women who are the present-day Micaiahs to be an accurate, faithful witness and light in the moral confusion of our time. Who are willing to say just who are willing to say it just as God recorded it? Let's kneel in prayer. Our Father, we bow before you this morning. We recognize you as God. We recognize you as supreme, sovereign. We recognize you as Lord of our lives. 
We say thank you for the mercy and grace that you have shown to us. Lots of it. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to live in appreciation for it. Help us to love you, to love your ways. Help us to get excited about it, even in 2022. Help us to live your word accurately in such a way that when people see us or choose to follow, they would be led to you. I thank you for the Weavertown Church. I thank you for the men and women who love you here. I pray that you would give them courage. I pray that in their generation they would be Micaiahs and completely faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.